The scripture reading for today is Ezra chapter 5, verse 3 through chapter 6, verse 14. At that time, Tatanai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shetabazainai, and their colleagues came to the Jews and asked, Who gave you the order to rebuild the temple and finish the structure? They also asked them, What are the names of the workers who are constructing this building? But God was watching over the Jewish elders. These men wouldn't stop them until a report was sent to Darius so that they could receive written instruction about this matter. This is a text of the letter that Tatanai, the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shetabazaniah, and their colleagues, the officials in the region, sent to King Darius. They sent him a report written as follows. To King Darius, all greetings. Let it be known to the kings that we went to the house of the great God in the province of Judah. It is being built with cut stones and its beams are being set in the walls. This work is being done diligently and succeeding through the people's efforts. So we questioned the elders and asked, who gave you the order to rebuild this temple and finish this structure? We also asked them for their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. This is the reply they gave us. We are the servants of the God of the heavens and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But since our fathers angered the God of heavens, he handed them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, the Chaldean who destroyed this temple and departed the people to Babylon. However, in the first year of King Cyrus of Babylon, he issued a decree to rebuild the house of God. He also took from the temple of Babylon the gold and silver articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and carried them to the, te to the temple in Babylon. He released them from the temple in Babylon to a man named Shishbazar, the governor by the appointment of King Cyrus. Cyrus told him, Take these articles, put them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its original site. Then the same Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of God's house in Jerusalem. It has been under construction from that time until now, but has not been completed. So if it pleases the king, let a search of the royal archives in Babylon be conducted to see if it is true that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, that the king's decision regarding this matter be sent to us. King Darius gave the order, and they searched in the library of Babylon in the archives, but it was in the fortress of Ekbatana in the province of Media that a scroll was found with this record written on it. In the first year of King Cyrus, he issued a decree concerning the house of God in Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt as a place for offering sacrifices, and let its original foundations be retained. Its height is to be 90 feet, and its width 90 feet, with three layers of cut stones and one of timber. The cost is to be paid from the royal treasury, the silver and gold articles of God's house that Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and carried to Babylon must also be returned. They are to be brought to the temple in Jerusalem where they belong and put into the house of God. 
Therefore, you must stay away from that place. Tatanai, governor of the region, west of the Euphrates River, Shetabazanai, and your colleagues, the officials in the region. Leave the construction of the house of God alone. Let the governor and elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its original site. I hereby issue a decree concerning what you are to do so that the elders of the Jews can rebuild the house of God. The cost is to be paid in full to these men out of royal revenues from the taxes of the region west of the Euphrates River so that their work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, and lambs for burnt offerings to the God of the heavens or wheat, salt, wine, and oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem. Let it be given to them every day without fail so that they can offer sacrifices of pleasing aroma to the God of the heavens and pray for the life of the king and his sons. I also issue a decree concerning any man who interferes with this directive. Let a bean be torn from his house and raised up. He will be impaled on it, and his house will be made into a garbage dump because of this offense. May the God who caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who dares to harm or interfere with this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued a decree. Let it be carried out diligently. Then Tatanai, governor of the region west of the Euphrates River, Shetabazaniah, and their colleagues diligently carried out what King Darius had decreed. So the Jewish elders continued successfully with the building under the prophecy of Haggai and the prophet and Zechariah, son of Ida. They finished the building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and King Arxaxes of Persia. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Uh, and thank you, Feifei. Uh, sometimes with such long passages, you hope they preach themselves, and Faith favored that really beautifully. We are in the middle of a series on the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're looking at what it means to be in a process of covenant renewal. And we've, in the past few weeks, looked at what is covenant renewal, and we've defined it as being moving back towards true worship, living lives that are oriented to God's big story finding and following God's call in every area of our life. And for the old temple times in Jerusalem, uh, in, the, in, the, in the times of Israel, uh, a large piece of that worship was following the Old Testament system of sacrifices at the temple. And we've looked at how that idea of taking a sacrifice to the altar, giving it to the priest and then the high priest, is... is has in a sense been replaced now in the new covenant with Jesus as our high priest and Jesus as the lamb, as John the, uh, just John the Baptist declared when he saw uh, Jesus coming towards him, the lamb of God, the sacrifice given uh, to redeem us all. And so for us in the New Testament, there's a movement of submission in every square inch of our life. That's what it means to be constantly in a state of true worship. And today's passage we're looking at in this process of covenant renewal, in this process of seeking out lives of true worship, of living lives of true worship, what do you do 
What do you do when the world gets in the way? What do you do when the things around you really get in the way? And we have uh, many examples of that. Perhaps the most powerful examples are missionaries that are actually serving in this church. I, I got a chance to speak to Rob Ananucci and, uh, yesterday as we were coming back from Presbytery, talking about what do you do? What, what do you do? Where do you find? What do you say to the Ananucci family about Afghanistan? When God seems to not be in the picture, when the world seems to have got in the way of the work of the church, of the plans that uh, we would fear that God has for that place. What do you do when the world gets in the way? And for those of you who are familiar with another missionary support, Andre, in the Caucasus, uh, in the remote areas of, of uh, in the outskirts of what used to be and still is part of Russia, uh, part of the old Soviet Union, still part of Russia under Russian control, the Russian government has gone in and is closing down, or at least has examined that school where, and that uh, teaching center where Andre's working, and they have done an investigation, and it looks like they're going to give a report, which is either seriously going to curtail his work or shut it down completely. What do you do when the world gets in the way? What do you say to the Ananucci family? What do you say to Andre in these situations? What do you say when the world gets in the way of what we are trying to do, when we are trying to be faithful, when we are trying to find and follow our calls and the world seems to get in the way? What do we do when relationships go wrong, when jobs fail, when our health seems to stop us from finding the way we feel we've been called to serve the Lord? Now, the passage we're looking at today is really part of the same passage that Kyle looked at last week. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 really belong together. They're bookended by a, uh, an idea or a concept or a way of expressing emotion through physical presence. If you look at 4.4, which was the beginning of the text that Kyle preached on yesterday, or last week, sorry, it's talking about being discouraged. And really, the Hebrew for that is shoulders slumped, hands down really not in a place of being able to express themselves. And, and we see 4-4, four, four, they're discouraged. By the end of the text that Kyle preached last week, we saw that the building of the temple has come to a standstill. Then we look today at the second part of that, which is chapters 5 and 6, and the temple building restarts, it's completed, and if you look at the end of uh, Chapter 6, in verse 22, you see that they are rejoicing, they're celebrating. In fact, the posture has completely changed. They've gone from shoulders and hands down to hands up in 6.22. So how do we, uh, how do we uh, find in chapter 4, where if you remember from last week, they were facing the same problem. The world had come and told them, stop building the temple. They distracted them and they created fear. And what did they do? They stopped. Chapter 5, almost a repeat of the same thing. People come and start investigating and inquiring, what are you doing building the temple? This time they don't stop. And then by the end of chapter 6, the temple is finished. So what's the difference? How do we move from a place of despair to hope? How do we find encouragement to do what God calls us to do, to be engaged in true worship when the world gets in the way? So we're going to look first at this through a recap of the history, and then we are going to jump into this idea of the two sides of God's overseeing eye. 
So let's quickly review the history. So the problem is presented in chapter 5. Tananiah is the governor of the region. He reports to the king of Persia. And this is real world politics. His job depends on him responding appropriately to the threats and the concerns of what's going on in the region that he is governor. If he messes this up, either his life or at least his livelihood is on the line. And it's his job to make sure that the province that he governs runs smoothly. Make sure there is no threat to the superpower of Persia. Now, his concern is that he looks over at what's going on in Jerusalem and they're on some massive building campaign. Now, that's a threat because, who knows, perhaps it's some sort of military project. They have no idea what's going on there and they're concerned about it. And it's his job. He's, he's rightfully going and saying, as the governor of this region, responsible to the king of Persia, I want to know what's going on here. I want to know what you're doing and why you're doing it. And he's worried about both the military aspect of what's happening and also the political aspect. When you build even a temple which doesn't necessarily have military power, you're starting to amass a group of people. There's a loyalty which is developing outside of the loyalty to the king of Persia himself. So his concerns are both military and political, and he's looking at the situation and saying, as a governor, I see this as a threat. I'd like to shut this down. And so his reaction is to step in, sort of like a nuclear arms inspector who goes to Iran and say, okay, I want to know what's going on. Give me the names, give me the dates, give me the process. What are you doing and why are you doing it? And quite honestly, I think you should stop. He's suspicious. He wants the names, he wants the collaborators, and he wants the details. He has the power, certainly he has the power to stop the project, uh, the project but not the ultimate authority to stop the project. He and the world believes that it's Darius, the king of Persia, that has the power to stop, the authority to stop the, uh, to stop the project being built. And so we see in verse, chapter 5, verses 7 to 17, a letter is written saying, okay, these people are saying that, that a previous king said that they should be allowed to build this, and so should we... Should we let this go on? He's sort of covering his bets. He certainly doesn't want to contradict what's going on uh, with the king, but he also wants to make sure that he's not letting something that shouldn't happen happen. So he goes to the supreme authority in the world at the time, the superpower of the day. He goes to King Darius in Persia, and he asked him, what should I do? Should I shut this down, or should we go on? And then in chapter 6, we see how this plays out. The letter arrives. Cyrus, King Cyrus, who made the decree, is ancient history at this time. All the promises have been lost to human memory. They're lost in the annals of Persian history. They're somewhere on some clay tablet somewhere, some piece of papyrus somewhere, maybe written on a bit of leather, shoved in a jar, somewhere in this great archive out there, sort of like the Library of Congress. It's like looking for a single book in the Library of Congress. And you've got to think that the chances of them finding this are pretty remote. You've got to wonder if Darius even has a big desire to find this. Nonetheless, with no computer search algorithms, no great big cataloging system, they found the decree on which it was written. And from the Edict of Cyrus, not only do they give them the okay, but they agreed to protect them while they were building it, to help them with the materials, to pay the workers that are there. They're going to underwrite the building project as well as give permission. And with that, 
the world's authority, King Darius has spoken. And through this process, the threat to real worship has been averted. They complete the temple and their hands are held high. So that's the history as it's written in the history books. That's how it looks from the outside. So what's really going on? Well, what's actually really going on is what I just told you. That's really what happened. There's no magic source in this. And we need to understand that this is real history and the way history unpacks. The question we need to ask is, what's the difference between chapter 4, where everything derails, when they get a little bit of opposition or trouble from the outside, and chapter 5, where true worship continues. Chapter 4, it stops with a little bit of pressure. Chapter 5, they continue to work towards that. And the key verse here is verse 5.5. Five, and I will read that uh, to you again. Um, but the eye of the Lord, their God, was on the elders of the Jews. And they did not stop. And this did not stop them. So this outside influence did not stop them. So the eye of the Lord was on them and they did not stop. And they didn't stop because they knew the eye of the Lord was on them. So in a sense, the eye of the Lord was on them and their eyes were on the Lord. They kept doing what the Lord asked them to do. And there's two sides to this eye of the Lord piece. The first is the eye of the Lord is on them in the providence of everything as it works out. And the second, is, the second side of this is that the eyes of the Jews were on God and they didn't stop. So let's unpack both of these pieces. Now this is an example of encouragement on steroids, right? They're, one, they're thinking, who knows what Darius is going to do? Maybe they won't even find the decree. I don't even remember it. Uh, you know, it was such a long time ago. It comes back and Darius's command is, yep, we found the edict. You're not only to pay for it, but you're to pay the workers and you're, paid to, and you're required to protect them. It's vintage Yahweh in ascension where God exceeds all expectations. Now, I want to tell you of a story from 2001 from one of our missionary families, the Ananuchis. In fact, it was August of 2001 when they, Rob, they were preparing to go to Afghanistan to be a missions family in Afghanistan and work out what to do there. And they were excited by that. Rob had just been there to do a preliminary trip. They were getting organized. They were in Colorado. They're all set to go. And all of a sudden, the Taliban tell them, you are not to come. You are not to come. All is revoked, and no way are you allowed to come. That was August of 2001. And Rob tells me, that that was the worst two weeks of their life. Here they are having discerned the call of God on their life to be missionaries in Afghanistan. That's the faithful way they want to be participants in the outworking of God's kingdom, and the world got in the way. The world said, no, it's not going to happen. And they could see no way through that. There was no way in August of 2001 that they could see how they could be in Afghanistan. Uh, September 9-11, 2001, the two towers came down, the U.S. went into Afghanistan, a new government was appointed in Afghanistan, and that new government came to the missions agency that the Ananuchis were working at and said, you are number one in the queue of all people we want to bring into Afghanistan. So we have these really interesting examples of God breaking in 
when things are bleak and grim, with lavish, generous pourings out of his blessings on his people. God is in control, and Ezra wants his readers to see that. God can work the unworkable. He can work the miraculous. God can even use his own enemies for his own good, for his own purposes. Now, God is building his kingdom. The big story is going to be written, and nothing is going to stop it from being written. Now, this, of course, is a foreshadowing of exactly what happened when Christ, uh, when, when Jesus was walking, and he was standing before the Sanhedrin, and they're asking him questions. The enemies of Christ set out to kill him, to, to, to put an end to the Messiah coming. And what happens? If you destroy this temple, it will be rebuilt in three days. Christ's enemies, in fact, were used in the process of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the liberation of us, the calling of us to being his people, the foreshadowing of the cross and the restoring of this temple, the use and the work of the enemies to rebuild the real temple that this temple is pointing towards. God's decrees are never revoked, whether it is to Persian kings, whether it is to Roman governors, whether it is to the Sanhedrin, the Taliban, the Kremlin, the White House. They all do his bidding. He works through the whims and the ambitions of those that support him and those that are his enemies. So the second and the flip side to this is that the eyes of the Jews were on God. They didn't stop. They stayed on point. They stayed on task. And we see this even more clearly in chapter, four, uh, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. Well, let me read them to you. And this was their reply to us. This is the letter, and this is what the governor, Tatanai, was saying. The is Israelites were saying back to them about the rebuilding. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the house that was built many years ago, which the great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers has ang angered the God of heaven, he gave us into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the Chaldean who destroyed the house and carried us away and carried away the people to Babylonia. Now what's really interesting, we hear that and we see we are the servants of God, of the God of heaven and earth. And we aren't really blown away by that. Because for us, we think of Yahweh as being the God of heaven and earth. We sort of get that. It's the way we talk about it. It's the way we think of God. We have this idea of this singular God. But, but in this time, that's not how they worked. See, the way it was back then is every little country, every little nation, every little tribe had their own God. And so... It would have been one thing if they said, this is our God, and Cyrus said, and we're really happy with you building and doing whatever you want for your little God. But they say, no, no, no. Our allegiance is to the God of heaven and earth. Our allegiance is actually to the God of the Persians and the Egyptians and every other state here. We are, we are talking about the sovereign Lord of everything and creator of everything. And so we have, in a sense here, this idea of something that, is much more profound and perhaps in our terminology we would say this is every square inch Jesus is Lord of every square inch it's not just a Sunday school or a Sunday church experience this is a God of heaven and earth of every area of every piece of our life and we're supposed to outwork that faithfulness in every square inch of our life and this message which they gave to the governor we should be giving to ourselves 
Our faith is not a Sunday faith or a faith which is restricted. In fact, the very act of true worship is the constant movement, the bringing in of our faith to more and more areas of our life. And you can see their meticulous and absolute concern. Even back when the Cyrus wrote his decree how the temple was to be built, the same place, on the same spot, with the same materials, in the same way. They didn't stop. They were clear-sighted for the very first time, perhaps, in many of their lives. They're like, no, we are faithful to Yahweh. He has called us to build this temple. This is what faithfulness looks like. We are following that calling. And this is not a Pollyanna view. This is not something they did because everything was finally working out really great. This is done in the context of real loss. A lot has been stripped away from the Israelites at this point. The Ark of the Covenant has been lost. That was lost with the destruction of the first temple. The second temple is not anywhere near as spectacular as the first temple. Israel as a nation has lost its influence. It lost it to the Babylonians. It never got it back, not to the Persians or the Greeks or the Romans. These people have had an enormous amount of prestige and status stripped away. And yet, they have found what true worship is uh, by returning to the way the Old Testament saw true worship, which is building the temple on this spot. All the rest is trimmings which have been stripped away. Now, do you know this type of trust? This trust which says, keep going, don't give up, persevere, uh, don't stop, even in the midst of loss. What about in a relationship which you believe God has ordained for you and it disintegrates? Perhaps it's through death or through someone choosing to divorce you or, or leave. or Some sort of catastrophic sense of failure enters your life and you feel that the call that you have, at least in that relationship area, the world is getting in the way. Or perhaps it's in some job. Perhaps you really strongly believe that God has called you, maybe not to the mission field in Afghanistan, uh, or, or, but maybe God has called you into some science field or into some law enforcement field or some sort of creative field, and you just can't make a living there. You're underemployed. You're struggling. You feel that's the faithful call on your life, and it's not happening. Can you trust through in the midst of that type of loss? Perhaps your health is given out and you need that health in your mind to serve the calling that you believe that God has put in your life. To be faithful, you feel that you need that health and yet it's not there. The world has taken something away from you which is getting in the way of your belief or your capacity or your sense of calling to be faithful. Have you learned to trust the author of the big story, to trust the puppet master, not just of kings, not just of politicians, not just of the White House or the Kremlin, but of jobs and relationships and health. Have you learned to trust the puppet master, the, the, the author of the big story? Are you willing in your faithfulness to do true worship even in the midst of loss and grief and where that starts to look different. Now, those are the two sides 
of God's overseeing eye. There's a side where his providence is complete. His writing of that story is absolute. His coming kingdom is not going to be derailed. That big story is going to be written. And our call into that is to continue to, to be faithful, to continue to try to follow our calling, to continue to try to move towards true worship, to be constantly looking for and asking for God to convict us. Where next, God? What next, Father? Where can I be more faithful? What do I need? Where do I need to bring your Lordship in? And are we willing, even in the sight of loss and grief, in our faithfulness, to accept that true worship may look different? Are we willing to submit through that? Now, we can't wrap this up without going back to our overarching theme for this sermon series, which is covenant renewal. We are currently in our story in a good place, perhaps for the first time since we started preaching through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The Israelites are in a great place. The temple is built. They're celebrating. They've just done a Passover feast. Their hands are in the air. They started off coming back from a Babylonian exile where many of the Jews were killed or displaced and the temple destroyed. They finally find themselves celebrating, being alive in worship, regathered at a temple that's been restored. God is at the center of their worship. But you've got to see this in the light of the history. There are two massive failures that are documented here in this text. First is chapter 4 which probably isn't that massive in the grand scheme of things, where they just stopped building the temple because they got distracted and fearful. The second is the reference that we read in the letter back to King Darius about how they were taken into captivity because God was angered at their lack of faithfulness. Israel living for self at the expense of God. Chapter 4, fearful, afraid, distractive. Chapter 4, verse 12, the picture of Israel of old, living for self at the expense of God. And yet this time, this final time when things look good, this covenant renewal has come together, it seems. They kept building the temple and they kept their eyes on God. Now, how did this happen? What was the difference? Well, one of the differences was chapter 5, verse 1, when you see who the preaching team was. The preaching team for the Israelites building this temple was Haggai and Zechariah. Now, what were they preaching? What were they preaching? It's a good question. We can get that just from the first three verses of the very first chapter of Zechariah. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Edu. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Now, we need to see this constant story of covenant renewal through two lenses. One is this idea of maturity, and the other is the idea of sickness. You see, I've been telling you that the Jews had their eyes on the Lord. The Jews had their eyes on the Lord. And you know what? It's perfectly reasonable for Christians, as they are maturing in their faith, to be fearful, to, to, to question God's providence, to, 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 to worry about those things. And it's the job of the elders to come alongside them, with those who have more maturity to come alongside. No, we know the history of God. Remember 2001. 
Remember what happened when God brought us back. Remember the, the faithfulness of God at the time of Moses and, and the exodus from Egypt. It's the role of the elders to come alongside. And so those elders, in a sense, aren't demonstrating a lack of maturity. They're de demonstrating a sort of spiritual sickness. And that's where the need for this covenant renewal comes. The constant process of maturing is the constant building and movement towards true worship. But there's a point where you stop that movement. You don't have that conviction. You sort of sit back and are lethargic. You're fat and happy as a Christian. You're no longer asking God, what does it mean to keep moving towards true worship? And the elders at this time in chapter 4 were at that place. But in chapters, chapter 5, through spiritual renewal, through hearing the grace that's offered by God, come back to me, come back to me. My grace is there for you. Seek my face. It's important to see that that constant story of covenant renewal, that returning to the path and seeking true, true worship, or in the language of our passage, the continuing to build the temple, the movement towards true worship, that idea of keeping our eyes on God is, is, is key to this idea of seeking true worship. We see that in Matthew 6, 22, verses 24. For keeping the eye, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. What are you seeking? Are you seeking true worship? Are you in a state of constant covenant renewal? So the response to spiritual sickness is to ask for that conviction, for that submission. There are a hundred good reasons to act faithfully. By acting faithfully, your children are more likely to follow the Lord. By acting faithfully, in the proverb sense, you're more likely to be successful in, in business or academics or in life or in friendship or in relationships. They're good reasons. There's only one true reason to be faithful. And that's because the God of the universe, Yahweh, is calling to you. He's saying, come back. Seek my face and I will seek your face. This is a prodigal son story. This is not a, a God which is looking to condemn. It's a God which is looking to embrace, to run towards, who is generous and pours out his blessing even in the midst of loss. So we need to be constantly looking. Are we spiritually sick? Have we become, have we become fat and happy as Christians? Or are we seeking to be more and more faithful in our true worship. And when our eyes are on the Lord, what can bring encouragement in the midst of loss to the Ananucci family? God is the puppet master of the Taliban. To Andre in the Caucasus, God is the puppet master of the Kremlin. To you, God is the puppet master of relationships, of bosses, of your health. What is the only true deep source of encouragement when the world gets in the way of our true worship? Remembering God's overseeing eye. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, as we continue through this series on covenant renewal through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, we are encouraged to be reminded of both your stripping away but of your great outpouring of blessing. And we pray, Father, that you 
Protect us through our community, through the, the, the royal priesthood, that you protect us through each other to constantly remember your goodness, to constantly encourage each other to seek your face, to re be reminded of your ability to bless and to work through all circumstances. And Father, we pray that when we find ourselves spiritually sick, that we will be reminded of how great your grace is, how strong your call is, how it's not a call of wrath, but a call of love, the call of the father of the prodigal son. And help us submit joyfully to that voice to come to you, to love you, to seek constant covenant renewal. Covenant renewal. We ask this in your name. Amen.